prayer. Oh Lord our God, we come to you now as we read and hear your word preached. We ask for the grace of concentration. We ask you would help us to put away the problems that we anticipate for this week and the troubles that we have felt or seen or experienced in the past week. And you would give us grace and wisdom, Lord. We ask this through Jesus' holy name. Amen. As the pastor of this church, I have a lot of goals. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. They're all within context of the Bible and the book of church order, I assure you. But each goal, my week as the preacher, is to give you each spiritual food which will nourish your souls. Spiritual food that you can take with you, almost as if you would um, go to a restaurant and order food and order a, a large portion and not be able to eat it all. And you would take some of it home with you, right? Call it a doggy bag, even though I don't think many of us bring it home for our dogs. We bring it home, we put it in the refrigerator, and what do we do with it? It becomes a midnight snack. If it's pizza, you can use it as breakfast. You can use it as lunch the next day. Pizza has a wide variety of uses, all of them very, very delicious. And that's my goal for the sermons, that you get fed here, but that you take it with you as well, and it nourishes you throughout the week and over the years. Now, I brought up pizza. You can bring up hamburgers. You order a hamburger, you expect a hamburger, correct? I recently ordered something, and even though it came as advertised, it wasn't quite exactly what I expected. It was very good, and I didn't, tried not to complain because people were starving as I ate it, but I thought, you know, well, this, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. I thought there was going to be hot ricotta cheese inside of it, and, and, and there wasn't. There was a little bit of melted mozzarella. It was good, but it wasn't quite what I expected. It was a minor challenge for me to overcome the desire to whine and complain. I could have sent it back, right? That would have been dishonest, because I ordered it. And I had read the menu. I knew what was in it, but I had asked the waiter... It's filled with ricotta cheese, correct? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think he just made a mistake. He might not even know where ricotta cheese is. Well, it's that soft, wonderful cheese that you can, you can put it in eggs. And you can put pizza sauce in it, mix it up, and you have what I call pizza eggs. And it is absolutely delicious, kids. Much better than donuts for breakfast, I assure you. It's a challenge to feed the people of God. Not because of anything that's wrong with you, or anything that's even necessarily wrong inside of me, although those things do come into play. It's just a challenge to wrestle with the texts and to bring to you concrete applications, concrete goals, concrete challenges. If I were to just come up here and give you doctrine without any application without any challenges, it might help you. It would help you. But it wouldn't be quite as nourishing. 
You see, to just give you what the text says without any application is like getting nothing but appetizers. You don't get the full course meal. It's like steak without the baked potato. It's going to be delicious if cooked properly, but that baked potato is definitely, at least in my view, lathered with butter and sour cream, going to push that meal over the edge into the realm of not a challenge to eat whatsoever. Not a challenge at all. Might even want to add seconds. Now, over the years, I've given you challenges. And I say this not, not as a reminder, because most of you know that I give you challenges from the pulpit. Maybe not every week, but most of the time. But I say it as a warning for what's about to come in this sermon. Now, I don't usually give you warnings, do I? I rarely give you warnings. I like to give you surprises. But I have to warn you that I'm going to give you an absolutely unbelievable challenge today. However, there's a great dividend if you meet this challenge. Great dividend. Husbands, if you can meet this challenge, get your attention. Your wives will never stop bragging about you. Wives, if you can meet this challenge, your husbands will likely never complain again. Do I have your attention? And if they do complain and you're meeting this challenge, then one brief demure smile from your glowing face will will make that sturdy man wither in godly shame and embarrassment and he will realize that he is wrong. Children, if you meet this challenge, your parents will have neither reason nor the desire to scold you, to ground you, to discipline you, or to punish you. Parents, if you can meet this challenge, your children will not have any desire to disobey you. Sound like a good challenge? Now, it's going to sound like a hard one, but I'm getting just a little bit ahead of myself because I'm not really the one who's going to give you the challenge. You see, the Apostle Paul is going to give you the challenge. So I'm going to blame the Apostle Paul for giving you this big, big challenge. But in reality, Paul isn't the one who's giving you the challenge because Paul was only an apostle. He was only a prophet. He was only an evangelist. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet, even though I do do evangelism. I'm a pastor teacher. I'm getting it third hand. Paul got it first hand. But originally, this challenge is in the mind of God. And Paul, as an authoritative apostle, wrote it down, superintended by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, ultimately, the challenge is coming from God Almighty. If I challenge you, let me be very clear. You have every human right to be able to say, forget that. I do not accept that challenge. It's a little bit more dangerous if the apostle Paul gives you a challenge... It's downright foolhardy to turn down a challenge from the living God. 
And when Paul and the other apostles wrote, they wrote authoritatively, they wrote with power, and they wrote the God's honest truth because all that they wrote came from the mind of God. Now this is a big challenge, a large challenge. The origin of the challenge, the creator of the challenge, is indeed Almighty God. So hear this morning's reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 30 through chapter 5, verse 7. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The first few verses that I read, I went over last week, but it's important, particularly in this book, to always give the context. And Paul begins this passage by telling us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, when you read this passage, it almost seems as if it's almost an aside, almost an interruption. Because, frankly, that command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that could be put in anywhere. Really? I mean, that's good advice any time. Do you think it's wise to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? It's also a very good doctrinal point because it proves that the Holy Spirit is not just an impersonal force, but He's a person. You can't grieve an impersonal force. You can't grieve the wind. You can't grieve an earthquake. You can't grieve a forest fire. You can grieve the people next to you, and likely you probably have. And vice versa. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And one of his roles is to seal us for the day of redemption. It's the deposit, the down payment of the inheritance that has been guaranteed to us by the blood of Christ. And we grieve him by sinning. And Paul gives us, frankly, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, an army an entire army group of sins and offenses by which we can grieve the Holy Spirit. If you want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, if that is your silly and ridiculous goal in life, then just open up Ephesians 4 and see what Paul tells you not to do and go and do it and see how your life turns out. Guaranteed that not only will you grieve the Holy Spirit, you'll bring untold grief upon yourself and your loved ones. 
maybe not immediately, but over time, absolutely guaranteed, with interest, with, with unlawful interest, like 50% return on your investment. And he uses these words, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He's going to give, in this section, he's going to give careful attention to the words that we use. Evil speaking put away from you. Now remember, this is within the context of the church. Did you speak evil of anybody this week? Speak evil of any politicians, political figures, public figures, celebrities? What about your loved ones? Do any gossiping this week behind someone's back? Even if you told the truth, was it gossip? See, you can tell the truth in a very malicious way. You can tell the truth and have it be evil speaking if that's your goal. Yeah, he's a drunk. He was drunk again. No, you told the truth. But how did you tell it? Why did you tell it? What was your purpose in doing so? To put all these things away and to be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Being tender-hearted is not a value or a virtue that most men particularly value. When, gentlemen, when was our grandfathers, uncles, when was the last time you told your sons to be tender-hearted? Manly virtue, right? Way up there? Be tender-hearted? Do you want your sons to be tender-hearted? Do you want your grandchildren to be tender-hearted? I hope so, because God wants them to be tender-hearted. The sad thing in this world is that a tender heart gets wounded fairly easily. There's only two choices. Tender-hearted, hard-hearted. Do you know anybody who's hard-hearted? Are they fun to be around? Or are they sad? Ultimately, they're, they're objects of pity. And we all have hardness in our hearts. But there comes a point where someone's heart will become so hard that they are hardened to the very Word of God. And God gives them over to their rancor and He gives them over to their sin. And when that occurs, you have the ultimate tragedy of a wrecked and wasted human life. And you only get one chance at life. Only one. And it goes by so very very quickly. And we're to forgive each other. Why? Even as God in Christ forgave you. And here's the challenge. The beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. This is the only time in the New Testament this is spoken of. Be an imitator of God. Think, just think about that for a moment. I told you this before, but um, some years back, um, you know, during a family discussion, my children asked me, you know, what would be a great job? What would be your dream job? And I half-jokingly, I said, God, I'd like to be God. Why? Well, because he's perfect, and he makes all of the rules. Well, here it is, Kevin. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You see, if you're a child of God... You can be an imitator of God. And let me be very clear. That's the best that you can do in this world. Be an imitator of God. That's the best thing. To be a mime of God. To mimic God. 
Is it a desire of your life? Or do you have other role models? I'm particularly talking here to the, to the young people. You're growing up in a society filled with role models who, if I can be brutally frank, are nothing more than, um, at best, trying to mislead you. At best. At worst, they're intentionally lying to you and trying to ruin your life. You're going to go away to college, hopefully some of you. Maybe even it happens in high school. So a news account, it was like 60 minutes or 48 hours or one of those shows. It wasn't a full-length documentary. It was talking about this phenomenon on campuses of binge drinking where, where, where young adults challenge each other to see how much alcohol they can consume in a short period of time. Maybe you saw something like this. The result is often either hospitalization or death. Now listen to me very carefully, kids. Never take up that challenge. That is ridiculously... What's a good word, adults? Yeah. Silly is the most polite way. Self-destructive. It's ridiculous to take up that challenge. Somebody gives you a challenge like that, you just say... I'll pray for you. Goodbye. People are going to challenge you as you grow older to do all kinds of ridiculously silly things. And that is one of the silliest things, and I'm being very nice with the word silly here. That is one of the silliest things you could ever hope to do. A drinking challenge. Let's see who can chug the most toxic alcohol in five minutes. That's really brilliant. You get sick, you go to the hospital, you end up in a coma, or you die. Those are the basic four alternatives. Ridiculously silly challenge. Better, better challenge would be, let's see who can get the best grade in chemistry. <laughs> Much healthier challenge. Even if it's art history. It's a good challenge to see who gets the best grade in art history. Even if it's finger painting, it's a better challenge than to see who can drink the most beer in five minutes. It's insanity. And we adults, we get all kinds of, maybe we're past the stage where something like that would even cross our minds, but we get filled with all kinds of challenges in our life. But this is the greatest challenge, to be an imitator of God. That, forget about drinking alcohol, this is a tall glass of ice water to drink. Be an imitator of God. Now when we think about that, what do we think about? Ooh, God of justice. God of the hammer. God of wrath. Holds the keys of death and hell and heaven in his hands. Well, the context of this is the God who forgave us in Christ. You see, that's where the therefore, and Ephesians is filled with therefores. It seems to me that almost every other paragraph, it's a therefore, and he just keeps rolling them over and over and over. The therefore in chapter 5 rolls us back to the end of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That's how it should read. 
the chapter break messes things up for us. So forgiving others and being tenderhearted is the first challenge of being an imitator of God. And forgiving others and being tenderhearted is a challenge for most of us. Have you ever noticed how often the theme of mutual forgiveness is discussed in the New Testament? It's every place, and Jesus himself gave us these chilling words. If you do not forgive others, do you know the rest? God shall not forgive you. I dare you to find more chilling words than that. Forget about horror movies and ridiculously dumb things like that. Forgive others or God shall not forgive you. Those are scary words. God shall not forgive you. Those are the most terrifying words in the universe. I do not forgive you. To hear that from God is literally an eternal death sentence. There are no more scary words in the entire universe. I don't care what language you speak. On Judgment Day to hear God say, no forgiveness. There's there's no recourse. You can't take the class over. You can't get a refund. That's it. You see why I said this is the biggest challenge you're ever going to face? If you're an imitator of God, this is what you'll be like. You will walk in love as Christ also has loved us and what? Given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. This is Old Testament language talking about Christ giving himself up as the burnt offering, as the sin offering for our sins. Now, you don't have to die for anybody else's sins. Christ died for your sins. Forget about dying or making atonement for your sins or anybody else's. It's done. It's finished. But this idea of loving and giving yourself for others, ooh, the challenge gets harder. Not only do I have to forgive this person, but I have to love them and I have to give myself for them. This calls for sacrifice. Now, in the context of the American church, the word of sacrifice, the idea of sacrificing yourself, of putting aside your creature comforts, of putting aside your temporary glee, of putting aside your temporary desires for the good of your loved ones or the good of society, that used to be regular, ordinary language that everybody understood on Main Street USA. It's almost like a foreign language today. For 40, 50, 60 years, maybe 70. Pretty much after World War II, it became more fashionable to think of me, myself, and I. That's who really counts. That's the Holy Trinity, right? Me, myself, and I. Forget about country, church, and society. Forget about wife, children, parents. It's me, myself, and I. 
This is the antithesis of Christianity. And this is what Christianity has become. There are many preachers who preach the message of Christ, and though they get some things technically right, the message is, you need to do this because this is going to make your life fantastic. And there are indeed benefits to being a Christian. The biggest one, of course, is eternal life, receiving forgiveness in Christ. Everything else after that is gravy. It's not even gravy. There's not even a word to describe it. When we realize we deserve nothing but judgment at the hand of God, nothing but justice, nothing but unforgiveness from God, but He gives it to us freely, everything else He gives us is an extra added benefit. But He gives them to us because we're dear children. We're called dear children. And but he goes on and says these things because we're to be imitators of God, because we're dear children, and we're to give ourselves over for the life of others. In other words, put others before yourself. Boy, wouldn't that work in marriages? Wouldn't that work in the workplace? Wouldn't that work in church? Wouldn't that work in society? If people actually thought about the benefit of others around them first and not themselves. In other words, if we didn't act selfishly, if we didn't think selfishly, how different would your world actually look? Being selfish is easy, isn't it? It's amazingly easy to think about me, myself, and I. I don't find it very difficult. Does anybody here find it difficult to think about yourself first? Now, kids, believe it or not, believe it or not, believe it or not, most of the time, high percentage of the time, in the 95% range, your parents are thinking about you all of the time. Almost everything they do. This is going to sound like a sappy love song. Almost everything they do is... Indeed, they, they do it for you. They're thinking about your future. They're thinking about what your life is going to be like. And they make sacrifices for you. Do you think your parents always want to get up and go to work? Do you think that that's always fun? It's not. It's a blessing, but it's not a blessing that's always fun. Because they might be going to a workplace that is rife with behavior that is very unlike what they get in church. They might have a harsh and unforgiving boss. They exist in this world. This is why fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, Paul says, let them not even be named among you. Don't even name them. Fornication is pretty easy to define. Any physical relation between men and women outside of the context of marriage, goodbye. Uncleanness, it's anything unsavory, goodbye. Covetousness. Covetousness and selfishness kind of work hand in hand. They're kissing cousins. They walk in in step with each other. If you're selfish, you're going to covet what other people have. But they're not even to be named. Why? As is fitting for saints. You know, when, when you talk this word, it's not fitting. 
That, that's old school language. And it, come, it comes from the tailoring world. That suits a good fit. We use that phrase all the time. Oh, that job's a good fit for you. This career is not a good fit for you. Hey, I think the two of you are a good fit. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've had to fire somebody or let somebody go and say, you know what, I just think that you and our organization aren't quite a good fit. That's a nice way of saying, you know what, you're canned. Here's your, here's your two-week severance, goodbye. You're just not a good fit. Not a good fit. This type of behavior is unfitting for saints. It's below us. It is sub-Christian. But it gets better. Neither filthiness. Okay, we don't want to tell dirty jokes, right? What about the next one? Foolish talking. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't dirty jokes. This isn't blasphemous talk. This is, this is foolish talk. Talking. This is silliness. This is his immature speech patterns. This is adults, if we're honest. A decent percentage of our daily conversations. All of us, honestly. Think about your speech habits. Are you imitating God or are you really very often... Um, Acting less than your age. Very often we're acting less than our age. We're not acting as dear children of God. Nor coarse jesting, which isn't quite filthiness. And it's a, it's a, coarse jesting is above foolish talking and a little bit below filthiness. But we all know what it is. It's the innuendos. It's the harsh language. They're not fitting. See, he's using this this fitting language in a number of different ways, but rather giving of thanks. How many times this week did you give thanks? Verbally now. This isn't just talking about at night and you say, God, thank you for this day. This is talking, this is the context of being social with people. How often do do you give thanks in and around people in a social situation? This is more than just um, saying a prayer of thanks uh, at dinner, even in a public restaurant. This is amongst ourselves and amongst each other to give thanks for others, for their gifts, for what they have done, for what they have contributed to our life, for the blessings of God. Or do we find ourselves degenerating into filthiness, foolish talking, coarse gesturing, and covetousness, which unveils itself in complaining? You see, if you're complaining, you're really coveting something else. Can't they drive better? Can't they move faster? Can't they be more polite? Can't they take care of me, myself, and I just a little bit more carefully? Then Paul says some chilling things. For this you know, or you can also translate it, you know this. No fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. Paul is equating covetousness with idolatry, which in case you haven't read your Old Testament, God really, truly despises idolatry. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? In other words, Paul is saying... 
fornicators, unclean people, and covetous people who are idolaters, they don't make the cut. They don't make the cut. And he continues with speech, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. You see, it's all about it's almost all about speech in this section. Empty words. Much of the advertising that we see is empty. It's empty. It has no content, no meaning. And we're not to be deceived because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He ends the section with a warning about God's wrath. And because of these things, he ends with, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The therefore, do not be partakers with them, that this section ends with, makes it very clear that this type of behavior, we should expect it in the world. God expects unbelievers, the sons of disobedience, as opposed to his dear children earlier in the text. We have sons of disobedience here at the end. In verse 1, we're called dear children. Dear children are, by definition, no longer sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience behave like this. The dear children are not supposed to. And frankly, if this type of behavior marks your life, if this type of behavior and thought patterns and speech patterns are accurate descriptions of your life, then we do very well to sit down quietly and ask, am I a dear child of God? Now, I'm not saying that, oh, wow, I did that once. I did, oh, man, I did it three times today. But is this the tenor of your life? If, if coarse jesting and foolish talking and, and not giving of thanks and being covetous, if you're a fornicator, if you're in love and enamored with this world, if that's the case, then we need to at the very least check ourselves and ask ourselves what direction our lives are going. You see why I told you this is a big challenge? I'd love to be God. And I'm pretty sure if you were honest, you would say that's a pretty good job description too. Boss of bosses, king of kings, ruler and creator of everything. You can't be that. Neither can I. But we can imitate him. And it's not quite what we think it is. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we ask you, to remove from us these speech patterns, these thought patterns, and these behaviors and help us to shine as holy people, imitators of God as dear children. Amen.